one of the or rather two or three different trends uh, will play out one is that <laughs> right now people are exploring the use of generative ai for pretty much anything you can think of right and mm-hmm. obviously it's not going to work for everything things like database queries and quantitative problems etc are being observed that you know llms are not created these kind of problems and so i think we will see some kind of rationalization of where generative ai gets used uh mm-hmm. the second thing will be wherever it does get used we will see a lot more of its power coming out because where it is applicable it is going to be game changing mm-hmm. and the third you know area of work would be how do we make this uh generative ai technology democratized and by that i don't mean that everybody has access to chat gpt that's fine but right mm-hmm. now chat gpt takes a few seconds to respond right and it's mm-hmm. very costly to host and run so can we mm-hmm. have smaller lighter generative ai models that work in specific context at a reasonable price right so they will mm-hmm. use some generalization but the specialized work will be at equal quality and it will cost you cents to run and not thousands of dollars Hi friends and welcome to this exciting episode of Leading with Data. Today I have with me Harshad uh, Harshad Kadilka who is a principal research scientist at Franklin Templeton and he is also a visiting associate professor at IIT Bombay. Harshad and I go back to the same roots so both of us are aerospace engineers from IIT Bombay and post completing his uh, uh, education at IIT Bombay he went on to do his PhD at uh, MIT and post that he has worked with IBM and spent a considerable time at TCS he has also been very actively involved in our community event so he was a speaker at data hack summit in 1729 and i always learn from him whenever i hear about his work and uh, the exciting work he is doing so i look forward to the discussion today harshad welcome to the show thank you kunal i am looking forward to the discussion as well great So Harshad, let's start with uh, you know your journey from your perspective. So can you tell us you know some of the significant milestones and decisions you took in this journey, uh, which you have had? Right. So I suppose the first milestone on this journey would really be when I was about to graduate with my PhD, and mm-hmm. the decision was whether to stay back in the US or to move to India. I think eventually <laughs> I did want to settle in India but I wasn't sure <laughs> if I should do it immediately but then right. I decided that in 2013 around a decade ago things were just starting to open up in India in terms of opportunities for high end research work uh, I found mm-hmm. a good opportunity with IBM and then moved here and things have been going great since and okay <laughs> both the moves I've made since then have been in pursuit of deeper research which also has real world impact so i've been mm-hmm. trying to find a mix of both and i think i did that at ibm to some extent to tcs for a long time and around a decade into my working life i had a decision to make whether to stay back in tcs for the long run or to try something else and mm-hmm. i decided to try something else and it's been a very interesting few months at franklin templeton since then 
Great. And uh, uh, so let me, you know, double click on some of these decision points. So, uh, for example, you know, the move to India, as you said, that you wanted to be in India in long term. But what were some of the trade-offs uh, you thought about and, and uh, how different is, let's say, the research environment in U.S. versus India? And if someone was, you know, thinking about it today, what would be your advice to them? Right. So it's an interesting question in the sense that there are clear trade-offs in uh, your personal life in the U.S. versus in mm -hmm. India as well as in your professional life. The personal mm -hmm. life portion, I think, is fairly obvious. I mean, <clears throat> in India, you have family, you have more uh, creature comforts, whereas in the U.S., you would say you have more, uh, you know, more money, obviously, at an absolute scale, and also maybe a few more technological advancements, infrastructure, etc. But then less of a social life than you would have in India. I think that mm -hmm. part everybody is familiar with. The question is about your professional opportunities. And mm -hmm. it used to be, say, a couple of decades ago that most of the US-based or Europe-based uh, companies had their cutting-edge research at home and then they would outsource, you know, some of the peripheral or auxiliary things to India. But since then, I think they have figured out that there is a lot of engineering talent in India and the labor rates obviously are more economical over here. So why waste the opportunity of having really smart people working at relatively economical rates? And so you will see a lot more, you know, exodus of core research from these companies to India. So places mm -hmm. like IBM, Shell, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, all of them you will see have very large research setups now in India who are working mm -hmm. at par shoulder to shoulder with their counterparts around the world. Right. Uh, so today, if someone was to make this decision, uh, should they treat it as, you know, the location doesn't matter or there are still advantages to, let's say, staying in US or in India uh, uh, as maybe the case? Right. I would say the decision now is more personal than professional. If you like okay. living in the US or in Europe, you should absolutely feel free to stay there. But if you mm -hmm. like living in India, you don't have to feel constrained by the fact that you don't have you don't have opportunities. I think you have mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. opportunities now over here as well if you wish to stay in India. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and you know your uh, focus on research, and as you uh, rightly said that you know you have been in this pursuit of deeper research uh, and working on high impact problems and then you've worked on a large variety of problems right specifically for example in reinforcement learning you have applied it to multiple scenarios and multiple settings so so can you uh, describe you know uh, how you go about kind of uh, finding these opportunities or research projects and then how do you kind of zero in on, on a problem which you would want to, let's say, uh, take up as the next problem you want to work on? Sure. So I think the key point we take into account now is that we are in an era of hyper-personalization, right? And personalization mm -hmm. is not just to a consumer like you and me, but also to a company or a particular client that you might be servicing. 
and mm-hmm. while earlier you could think about setting up you know a broad set of rules to handle your decision making algorithms and then just apply them everywhere you no longer have that luxury either because of economic urgency that you need efficiency or because of sustainability and many other reasons and so if you want to specify a very particular set of algorithmic logic to individual problems you have to resort to learning based systems you can no longer just apply handwritten programs mm-hmm. And that's where I think the most opportunity lies. And the kind of problems I seek in these automated decision-making systems are problems where existing algorithms don't work, but we do need mm-hmm. more fundamental contributions to make it work in the real world. So I'm not looking for problems that just have mathematical curiosity. And I'm not looking for problems where the algorithm exists. It's just a matter of applying it to the problem. I want something that's mm-hmm. in between these two. So that's where I try to look for opportunities. Yeah. And and can you uh, share maybe an example in terms of what trade-offs you made and zeroed in on uh, any of the, let's say, research problems or something which you are working on right now? Mm-hmm. So um, take, into, uh, take as an example a problem I was working on at TCS in the era of mm-hmm. supply chain inventory management. Uh, it mm-hmm. comes with a lot of publications and it's a public product, so I can you know talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. So the question there was that if you wanted to manage the inventory of somebody like a grocery retailer who sells a lot of mm-hmm. perishables, then you want to maintain that inventory at an optimal level. If you if it goes too right. high, you will not be selling everything and your perishables will go to waste. If the inventory yeah. is too low, you will run out and you won't be able to keep track. And obviously, mm-hmm. perishables have a very moving range, right? So there are seasonal fruits and vegetables, etc. So you cannot use historical data all the time to just focus on a specific uh, class of products. You have to handle mm-hmm. new products coming in, old products going out. And so the kind of reinforcement learning approaches that we use there were focused on what are the key features of a particular product that we need to track. Things like shelf life, uh, weight, volume, you know, margins, etc. That are mm-hmm. agnostic to what that specific product is. Right. So that's a practical mm-hmm. consideration that we brought in. And then there was Mm -hmm. a fundamental question of how do we solve this problem at scale where you have 100,000 plus products. And so that's Mm -hmm. where the fundamental contribution came in as to how do we create scalable reinforcement learning algorithms to manage these products throughout the supply chain for a large retailer. And Mm -hmm. so that was a very satisfying outcome for me when it came into products and we did large projects for actual customers and we saw the real world impact of that kind of uh, work okay interesting and in this case for example if the uh, uh, perishables decay then then you would charge a penalty and and if they kind of uh, stay fresh then then there would be presumably some reward yes so the reward is clear because you have margins and profits the penalties mm-hmm. are slightly more tricky because some amount of waste uh, is inevitable because if you run out, it's more of a penalty than, you know, having a small amount of uh, veg or fruit remaining. 
and so you have to mm-hmm. design your penalty carefully so that the system doesn't become too conservative and say okay don't sell anything because this is a local optimal if you maintain zero right. levels of product you will get no wastage right so you have okay. to make that balance between penalties and rewards mm-hmm. interesting interesting and uh, uh, in in all the let's say different applications which you have uh, you know seen or uh, worked on uh what has been the most exciting project for you or maybe most uh, you know unanticipated area of application of reinforcement learning or, or uh, any other technique for that matter right so unanticipated maybe not so much from a theoretical perspective but from me personally would probably be my, the work i'm doing right now at franklin templeton because mm-hmm. throughout my journey up to a year or so ago i never saw myself as somebody who could work in the area of finance because i thought it was a very fast moving very cutting cutthroat kind of world but then i mm-hmm. found this opportunity where it turns out that if you take a corpus of money that you want to invest for the long term and you have long term plans such as buying a house or you know managing your children's education and so on then how do you take decisions to rebalance your portfolios to make sure you're achieving your goal with a high probability and mm-hmm. currently we have a product at franklin templeton called the goals optimization engine that solves this using dynamic programming uh, okay. and mm-hmm. everybody who works in optimization knows that dynamic programming is great but it has problems with scalability especially as you add more dimensions to your decisions and so right now we are trying to move into the area of reinforcement learning to handle uh, factors such as variable inflation variable interest rates so on and so i'm learning a lot about the dynamics of financial systems and the ways your portfolios or your wealth evolves over time and it turns mm-hmm. out it has very nice parallels with actual physical dynamical systems so that's an interesting insight for me at least personally over the last few months interesting so this is uh, personalization for users who have let's say invested in the funds run and managed by franklin templeton uh, yes interesting interesting uh, and uh, you know in some of these uh, techniques as you mentioned right so, uh, places obviously dynamic programming but historically some of these have been uh, probably handled through things like time series uh, forecasting and and supervised learning so so how do you uh, you know kind of uh, see these trade offs of uh, let's say higher compute versus uh, let's say potentially higher reward and then are there uh, is there a framework you use to decide whether it's the right problem to go after or or not yes so the idea there is really uh, how much time and scale do you have to manage in terms of getting decisions out of your systems right so mm-hmm. everybody knows that if you are able to solve a problem using traditional optimization methods uh, you know your linear programs etc that gives you the optimal answer right the question mm-hmm. now becomes can you solve your linear programs for millions of customers when they are required to give you decisions in a second or so 
right and when it comes mm-hmm. to that kind of scale or latency requirements that you say okay I, my tra- traditional optimization algorithms are no longer able to handle this volume and so i will mm-hmm. go to learning based systems which will give me good answers but they will not be optimal they might be within 10% of the optimal but mm-hmm. you know 90% accuracy for a million customers is better than 100% accuracy calculated for your average customer right, right. so you you are able to achieve some amount of personalization with uh, this kind of approach which is better than what happens for an average customer of your say category or class interesting interesting uh, and uh, you know uh, you also did a uh, talk uh, at the last data x summit which was about the exploration and exploitation dilemma in the generate uh, ter- ai era right so so just right. uh, before we come to that specifically but just for you as a professional right uh, how has been the last uh, let's say one and a half years and in this entire generative era uh, momentum and phase so so was there a aha moment for you or you, you because you had seen let's say gpt 2 3 you 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 knew this would happen at some time so so how was your reaction to it and then you know uh, how do you think the evolution is uh, going on right now right so i think some applications of generative ai were expected especially in the mm-hmm. uh, fields of language and vision we could see this coming because of gpt2 and 3 as you said and other you know ideas in vision such as vision transformers and so on so mm-hmm. that was not so uh, unexpected what was unexpected mm-hmm. was actually two things one was how quickly gpt 3.5 and 4 uh revolutionize mm-hmm. the you know language and vision space the fact that mm-hmm. you know they basically just had a switch where they said beyond this level of parameters you suddenly get close to human performance and that was sort of surprising at a fundamental level the second mm-hmm. fundamental thing for me especially working in the area of ai for decision making was that how effective these systems turned out to be in my area of work the fact that mm-hmm. you could leverage an llm to produce actions from for a reinforcement learning agent or you could Correct. use in context learning for reinforcement learning those things were sort of surprising because these models are not trained on these kind of tasks and yet it Correct. seems that there at a fundamental level there is some similarity in the way these models represent language and in the way mm-hmm. reinforcement learning agents represent states so that is interesting again at a very fundamental level as well as at an application level so so basically uh, two things one that this as soon as you cross the threshold the entire game changed and then some of the emergent properties as they started coming out which they were not explicitly kind of trained on right and uh, uh, from your vantage point right as you said so one of the areas which uh, i think all of a sudden a came into limelight and b also changed fundamentally was reinforcement learning right so uh, because uh, obviously rlhf played a very significant role in in creation of uh, chat gpt but also you know uh, traditional rl versus let's say if you replace that with uh, uh, some parts with llms if, if the applications allow 
all of a sudden it becomes a lot more manageable it becomes a lot easier to kind of build those systems so so how do you see this interplay and then you know what are some of the trends which you are seeing uh, in, in now building these learning based systems right so you know I, there's an interesting point in what you said which is rl was used to train chat gpt and now people are using chat gpt to train rl agents right and okay. so what i see coming up is probably a merger of multiple fields which used to be treated separately earlier so you had nlp folks you had vision folks you had rl folks i think now everybody is working towards the same thing using the same kind of tools right so mm-hmm. that is probably something that will further accelerate the progress in this area because you will have ideas coming from very disparate cohorts of people and they will start to exchange and trickle into each other's areas so it will be mm-hmm. an interesting thing to see what happens next whether it can absorb more areas of ai and data driven algorithms uh, as it goes along interesting interesting and uh, let's say you know i am uh, uh, just picking up a use case right let's say uh, we get Uh, on analytics with their a uh, few million users who are registered and i have let's say their past data uh, and i want to build a engine which is let's say a combination of rl and and these generative algorithms which essentially at all points can guide people with what are the next resources which they can use and how should they kind of navigate through the world of data science right so so uh, what would be the right approach according to you to solve this problem and then how should someone think about uh, uh, let's say solving this problem should it be you know you go uh, via let's say supervised learning and then then at some point introduce rl or or uh, uh, it might be okay if we like directly start with rl engine as well right so you know the way i think about it usually is that rl is an approach of last resort you know as we discussed mm-hmm. optimization if it works is the best option if it doesn't work then you move to learning based systems right so there's a further uh, demarcation within learning based systems which is if you know what the right answer for a particular situation is you should use supervised learning why would you use rl right so when nothing mm-hmm. else works you know people turn to rl in the same way that you know maybe <laughs> when everything else goes away people turn to god in the same way you know, people turn to rl at the end so mm-hmm. what i would say is first we should always try to baseline using supervised learning algorithms right so mm-hmm. you can carry out surveys of people who say that you know i wanted this page and so right. you use that as label data to say okay this is the baseline performance i can achieve using supervised learning and then you mm-hmm. introduce rl and say if i now treat my trajectories of people who are coming into the website clicking on you know content or watching it you know when did they leave the video did they leave part way or did they watch the whole video and now you use your domain knowledge to provide feedback to an rl agent for all of these particular uh, events and you design mm-hmm. your reward functions and say now go and try to maximize the, my reward 
you might see surprising results of oh i never thought that i wanted to see this video but it turns out that i am very interested in it right so those kind right. of results are something that rl can achieve which your typical supervised learning will not achieve because supervised mm-hmm. learning mm-hmm. is more of an imitation of what you want an algorithm to do whereas rl lets you explore right. things that the, you did not expect which mm-hmm. can be a good thing or a bad thing but for a website like analytics with ya where you have content to show and really no risk as such right it's not a safety critical uh, problem right. it makes sense to do more exploration okay and that i think probably is a you know good time to talk about your talk uh, on exploration exploitation uh, in a uh, generative ai area right so so uh, can you uh, share a brief uh, about you know the talk and then what were some of the key points uh, in that right so the talk that i gave at the last data hack summit was really about the fact that if you look at your typical generative ai pipeline you start mm-hmm. with a prompt that you give to something like chat gpt and you get a response right and that response is based on the prompt that you give plus whatever parameters it has learned on previous training data and so together they produce a probability over the next token a token would be a word uh, in the response yeah. and so you produce this series of tokens based on conditional probabilities and when you collect them together you get a prompt so if you think about the parallels with reinforcement learning what you see is that in rl you observe your history or trajectory so far so you have states actions rewards for previous time steps collected into your trajectory so far and your rl agent basically produces a probability over all the next actions it could take and then it chooses mm-hmm. an action based on these probability distributions so there is a very nice parallel between what generative ai does and the kind of actions that reinforcement learning produces and so there are ideas that can go in both directions from rl to generative ai and from gen ai to rl and so one mm-hmm. of the things is the idea of exploration so can you do more structured exploration in rl algorithms using the concepts of generative ai because generative ai already does token uh, you know sampling based on exploratory ideas and then obviously mm-hmm. can you use concepts from rl in terms of directed exploration or sample efficiency to improve the resource consumption of generative ai methods maybe you don't need you know large gpus to host an llm you maybe you can use it using a much smaller hardware architecture if you use ideas from rl so that's what the talk was about interesting and uh, since the talk uh, have you uh, uh, you know further worked on this or or have you kind of looked at this cross pollination of ideas uh, and then adopted any of those in your work Yes. Uh, so some of the ideas that you can easily imagine doing are, uh, we know that ChatGPT these days is capable of producing quite sophisticated, uh, you know, snippets of code in response to our questions. So one of the things my PhD student uh, Richa Verma is doing, she also had a talk at the HSF, uh, yeah. incidentally. Uh, one of the interesting things she's done is asked an LLM to produce a policy for an RL agent to think of as a baseline exploration policy. So he says, if you describe mm-hmm. the environment and say, give me a set of rules to navigate in this environment, 
then it gives you a piece of code which you can directly implement to collect data for your RL agent. So the idea there mm -hmm. is that you can explore in a safe space using this kind of policy. You can pre-train your RL agent to know the environment dynamics to some extent so that it doesn't go completely off the rails when you do online training. And now you launch mm -hmm. your RL training using this pre-trained policy. So that gives you, you know, some amount of safety guarantees when you start to train your RL agent online. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the current work or coming to, uh, you know, your now role at Franklin Templeton, uh, you mentioned you're, you know, using and developing these RL-based agents. Uh, and are they like the pure RL-based engines or are generative AI is something which you are still focusing on or are still very early days to, to kind of uh, put them in a category? Yeah, it is somewhat early days, but I think generative AI will definitely play a big role. Um, especially mm -hmm. if you look at papers since 2023, there are a lot of papers that are using ideas from generative AI to help RL either to produce actions directly or to act as, you know, internal simulators for the RL agent. So there is a class of right. RL called model-based RL where you try mm -hmm. to predict what your future states will be and you plan your actions according to this model that you have built of the world. And people are exploring mm -hmm. the use of LLMs to make these models. So, you know, right. concepts like these are likely to be included in whatever we do going forward. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and in a domain like yours, uh, how do you handle the risk of, let's say, hallucinations? Because, you know, ultimately the idea is to release it for the customers. Right. So the reason we are not too worried about hallucination in our context is because we are using these LLMs for quantitative problems. So we are mm -hmm. not releasing the LLMs to the end user and saying that, you know, this is a, a statement that I'm making, which is true, but which may or may not be backed by fact, which is the problem with hallucination. What we are asking mm -hmm. LLMs to do are solve fairly quantitative problems. So we are asking it indirect questions such as write a program for me and I can read mm -hmm. that program and verify it, right? So mm -hmm. it's kind of like cryptography where you don't know how the encryption key was made, but you can easily verify the key. So, mm -hmm. and that gives mm -hmm. you the confidence that this LLM is not having problems with hallucination or even if it does, I can just rerun it and get a new prompt or a new response and verify that and so on. So we have these checks and balances whenever we work with LLMs. I think at the present moment, releasing LLMs without any fine tuning into the real world is risky, but yeah. it has a lot of potential for acting as the first stage of your work. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And uh, projecting uh, a bit in future, right? So, so what are some of the trends which you see let's say, playing out in the next couple of years or maybe three to four years? So I think one of the, or rather two or three different trends uh, will play out. One is that <laughs> right now people are exploring the use of generative AI for pretty much anything you can think of. Right? And mm -hmm. obviously it's not going to work for everything. Things like database queries and quantitative problems, etc., are being observed that you know LLMs are not created these kind of problems. 
And so I think we will see some kind of rationalization of where generative AI gets used. Uh, mm-hmm. The second thing will be wherever it does get used, we will see a lot more of its power coming out. Because where it is applicable, it is going to be game changing. Mm-hmm. And the third you know, area of work would be how do we make this uh, generative AI technology democratized? And by that, I don't mean that everybody has access to chat GPT. That's fine. But right mm-hmm. now, chat GPT takes a few seconds to respond. right? And it's mm-hmm. very costly to host and run. So can mm-hmm. we have smaller, lighter generative AI models that work in specific context at a reasonable price? Right? So they will mm-hmm. use some generalization, but the specialized work will be at equal quality. And it will cost you cents to run and not thousands of dollars. Interesting. And do you see the same trends in, let's say, vision and and video and voice areas, or or you think they might play out uh, differently? Yeah, absolutely, I do. So we have already seen now uh, people coming up with video-based world models using generative AI and using those right. to train RL algorithms. Right. So yeah. I, you know, the more powerful generative AI becomes maybe we can do a lot more with video and image compression and just keep the essence of a video or an image and just transmit Mm -hmm. that, right? So you can imagine that your communication cost is much, much lower because you're not transmitting actual frames of your video. You're just transmitting the latent representations of your video. And then at your Mm -hmm. client side, you simply use these latent representations to generate the video itself, right? So that's something wacky, but I think it's possible in the next five years. Interesting. Very interesting. And, uh, 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 you know, let's say someone uh, is getting into, uh, you know, industry-oriented research or, again, the intersection which you said, right? So so problems which uh, require deeper research but obviously have a practical application and then create a high impact. Uh, what would be your, you know, pieces of advice to a person like that? How should they think about their career in the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Right. So my advice really would be that don't focus your career on just the tools you will be using to solve these problems. So don't just learn about AI. You have to become a domain expert first, which means you have to find an area that you are interested in, whatever it is, some engineering discipline or otherwise. Learn a lot about it because today a lot of people are graduating with degrees in AI and data science, but with no other experience. And so they are generalists. Mm -hmm. And we do need generalists, obviously, but right now the supply is much higher than demand. And so the Mm -hmm. demand is really for people who have specific knowledge in an area and can use AI to solve those problems. So that's Mm -hmm. where I think people can start their careers. And then if they want to move into other areas, they can always do that. right? But to get a foothold into this area, you have to have something unique. And that uniqueness can come from your domain knowledge. Okay. Okay. So, so, uh, uh, or in, you know, other words, probably spending the first few years in specific domains to, to make sure that that expertise builds and obviously keep, keep applying these, uh, methods and tools. Yes. Great. Great. And, uh, uh, should for you, uh, how do the, let's say next few years look like, so assuming I'm talking to you, 
three years, five years out, uh, where where do you see yourself? What what are some of the problems you would want to work on in the next uh, three to four years? So in the next few years, I think I am looking forward to really going deep into this area of finance and mm-hmm. seeing first of all understanding what are the problems there, what are the open problems there. There are some things that are well understood, some things that are not well understood. And some things that are well understood, but still unsolved because of the technological or mathematical challenges. And that mm-hmm. third category is really where I think the, you know, the juice or the meat of the problem will be in the next few years. So I think I mm-hmm. spend a year or so finding what these problems are. And then a couple of years, at least it will take to really address at least one or two of these problems. So I'm really looking forward to you know, building on this domain expertise. Uh, for the next few years. Interesting. And then uh, again, from finance perspective, right, and uh, especially now in the domain you're working, there have been these two, three inflection points when you reflect back, right? So the first one was when when people started using quant methods in in you know investments and, and recommendations. The second one was uh, uh, you know uh, using specifically ml based techniques uh how how big do you think is this opportunity that with these generative ai and then learning based systems uh do do you see this transforming completely or uh, you see that there would be let's say a few problems where you would have high impact and then uh you know some problems where you would not probably see as much impact I think you will see impact everywhere, but I mm-hmm. don't think you. it will turn out to be the kind of dystopian scenario that people are afraid of, which is AI taking over everything. And the mm-hmm. reason for that is AI doesn't have motivation of its own. Right. So you, what I see happening is that AI will come up to be a really, really powerful, useful tool that people will mm-hmm. use to achieve their objectives in the same way that computers you know, revolutionized computing, but they did not take over the world. Everybody uses mm-hmm. a computer, but you don't just hand over a task to a computer and say, manage my investments. In the same way, people will still be required. You will need deep domain knowledge in finance. You will need the instincts that humans have. You will need the soft skills that humans have to interact with clients. But a lot of the crunch work, you know, the crunching through numbers, finding trends, identifying opportunities, those kind of tools, I think you will see a lot of uh, generative AI techniques coming up to handle that. Okay, great, great. Uh, one of the aspects which we haven't kind of touched about is, is you know, your teaching and then, you know, uh, the courses you take uh, at IIT Bombay and then Otherwise, so so can you, you know, share what kind of courses do people, uh, do you take and then what areas do you teach? Mm-hmm. So uh, I have a joint appointment at IIT Bombay between the aerospace engineering department, our alma mater, and mm-hmm. the computer science department. So typically mm-hmm. in the fall term, I teach uh, a core aerospace course with somebody else. I don't have the bandwidth to teach the whole semester. So I'll mm-hmm. teach the part of a core aerospace engineering course, typically modeling and simulation based. And then in spring, I teach a workshop series uh, on deep reinforcement learning. Right? And my motivation okay. is really twofold there. One is 
uh, I want to give something back to the student community and I feel that more than you know uh, donating money which is also important but if you're able to donate time it turns out to be a force multiplier is what I feel and on the other hand I get to learn a lot from the students as well it keeps me on my toes it makes sure that my fundamentals remain strong and I keep Mm -hmm. learning new things because students keep asking about new things right so generative AI when it came up uh, some people might have found it hard to find the bandwidth to really go deep into the papers and understand the fundamentals. But I had to do it because my students would ask me. Right? So that right. keeps me on my toes also. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, and uh, uh, in your own workflows, right? have any of these generative AI tools made a difference if, uh, and, and do you use them in let's say, either finding out more research papers or summarizing them or or any aspect in that sense. So, so how are you using these tools yourself? Yes. So on the academic side, I definitely use these tools to some extent. So for example, you know, uh, generating small snippets of code that uh, solve a problem if I'm just like, doing something exploratory. Uh, on the professional mm-hmm. side, I'm still a bit careful about using them because of the privacy implications and uh, you know liabilities and so on. Uh, but definitely mm-hmm. on the learning side, when I'm trying to get into a new area or as you said, finding research papers uh, and so on or summarizing them, it really does help. Okay, okay. And uh, 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 you know, one of the things that you mentioned briefly was these smaller models and then maybe you know uh, more open source models as well uh, coming in so so how far do you think is a, is a scenario where each of us is carrying the, our own llms on our laptops which are let's say assisting us uh, in in to start with specific tasks and then then maybe more generic tasks uh, i think really not far so the mm-hmm concepts and theoretical tools already exist uh, what remains to be fixed is a the engineering side of it and b the economic side of it right so to mm-hmm. really encourage the production of these models you have to see some return on investment and you need yeah. to have you know if you are a startup you need to see where will you make the money from if you make these open source small size specialized models and so once those mm-hmm. business cases get solved and people are able to uh, you know, make money out of them, I think you will see these proliferate very quickly. It could happen in two years, it could happen in five years, but I don't think it will be much farther than that. Okay, great, great. Uh, uh, Harshit, towards the end of uh, you know uh, every podcast, we ask our guests a few uh, you know rapid fire questions. And then the idea is to just know you better as a person uh, and then you know uh, just uh, uh, see who you are as a person right so so i'll just go ahead and ask some of those questions sure and then i would want you to answer whatever comes first to your mind so so which books have had the highest impact uh, on you uh pg woodhouse and george martin so the game of thrones books Okay, interesting. And uh, uh, again, uh, when you, let's say, set up your work, do you, 
like to work more overnights or are you an early morning person? I am not a morning person, so I usually do afternoons to just post dinner time. Okay, okay. And uh, uh, which which operating system do you prefer? Is it Mac, Linux? Linux hands down. Okay, great. And then which which phone is it? Uh, uh, iPhone? Android. 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 Okay. You will see where I'm going with this. All open source. <laughs> All open source. Exactly. Great. Great. Uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing uh, those questions. Any last uh, you know uh, pieces of advice? Anything which we didn't touch upon uh, in in your journey which you would want to share? Uh, I think the only piece of advice or, you know, takeaway that I have from my journey is that, you know, don't just use new models or things as tools, but really understand Mm -hmm. them at a deep level. And that will really let you utilize their power and it will help you in your career as well if you invest the time to dig deep into what's happening. Uh, So rather than just be a user of these models. Yeah, great, great. Thanks, thanks for uh, sharing that, Harshal. And uh, once again, thanks for your time and you know, thank sharing you for those having me. insights. Thank you.